Listener. This morning, a warning from Elon Musk and other tech industry experts about the power of artificial intelligence. It is, I think, actually a bigger risk to society than uh, cars or planes or, or medicine. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. It's one of my areas of greatest concern. The, 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 the more general ability of these models to manipulate, to persuade, uh, to provide sort of one-on-one uh, you know, interactive disinformation. Well, killer robots, artificial intelligence, deep fakes. Are we all doomed? <laughs> the man to tell us all about that is Toby Walsh. He's the chief scientist of the Artificial Intelligence Institute at the University of New South Wales. He sold his first computer program at the age of 13, but he says because it was so long ago, there weren't enough people with computers. So he didn't make as much money as Palmer Lucky when he sold the virtual reality headset to Facebook. But Toby, thank you for being with us. What is generative AI? It's the the latest flavour of AI. It's uh, ChatGPT, the fastest growing app ever, faster than Twitter, faster than Facebook. These are AIs that generate content. They can generate text, they can generate images, they can generate audio, they can generate video. And I think the best way to think about them is actually, it's a bit like this the autocomplete on your smartphone. It actually works out how to complete the next letter, the next word. And because they're trained not on a dictionary of words like your smartphone, but on the internet, I mean, literally a third of the content of the internet, they can actually complete the paragraph and the page, and they can actually create quite plausible text. But the challenge is that that they're only saying what's probable, reflecting back the sort of things that you can read on the internet. I asked a chatbot recently to write a short speech about pumped hydro in the style of Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> and it actually wasn't a bad job. But but I guess it has read the 20 or so speeches I've written and articles I've written on that subject and just spewed it out. Would that be the way that, that it would have worked? Yes, you can ask it to write in the style of anyone. You can ask it to write in the style of Shakespeare or Malcolm Turnbull or whoever it is. But I suspect it was probably a bit of a pastiche of Malcolm Turnbull. Oh, yeah, totally. I would hope the real Malcolm Turnbull was a little more exciting. I would, I typically would give it a B plus grade. Yes, no, exactly. No, no, I I agree. I mean, should we be concerned about this? I mean, there there is a huge panic going on at the moment about the chatbots. Where do you see the, the real dangers to democracy? You could build a, a deep fake Donald Trump, for example. Mm. You could get that Donald Trump to ring up every voter in the United States and have an interactive conversation and persuade them to vote for him. Um, and I think that there's nothing against that. That's entirely within the rules. And indeed, the Republican Party have just put out a campaign advert, which was entirely deep fake. This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. Border agents were overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening. Now, if if that was authorised by a candidate, then I suppose it's legitimate to some extent. I mean, let, let me give you an example. It, it's le- legitimate, but it may be deceptive. Well, yes, but let, let me give you an example. So it's very common in election campaigns, and obviously the last election campaign I was 
active in was 2016, to have what is called robocalls. You know, phone will ring and someone will say, you know, hello, I'm you know, Malcolm Turnbull or Bill Shorten or John Howard or wherever it is, and it'll be a recording, in my case, of my voice. I'll say, you know, I encourage you to vote for Toby Walsh. She's a Liberal candidate in this electorate because of X, Y, Z. And that's it. So it's just one way. Now, it was interesting on polling days, the number of people that would say, oh, it was so lovely chatting to you on the phone. And, of course, because some people do actually think it's live and chat back. But, but it is, I think, for most people pretty obvious. But if I were to authorise a chatbot to sort of essentially impersonate me, I guess it's not, well, it's not unauthorised, it's authorised, but unless you made it clear that it was in fact a chatbot and that they were talking to a computer, effectively, uh, it would be misleading. But the real danger, of course, would be if somebody impersonated you without authority, you know, programmed it so it said, you know, please impersonate Joe Biden in this conversation so that he says he's an agent of some satanic lizard conspiracy. Yeah, and we can't unsee the things that we've seen. We're not used to say, saying that just when we saw that picture of, of the, the Pope in a puffer jacket, which was deep faked. I saw this picture on Twitter over the weekend. I saw people res- were responding to it. You know, it, it's not real, but it looked pretty realistic. We can still see that image, even though the Pope has never worn a white puffer jacket. Yes, well, well some people have suggested the Pope should have bought <laughs> a puffer jacket like that. He should have owned the moment. He should have indeed. But, you know, he couldn't have got it, Toby, because the puffer jackets had sold out. <laughs> there were none left because everyone thought the Pope had one. But, I mean, ultimately we're undermining what is true and what is false. Well, well, okay, so so is, the, is part of the answer to treat this like counterfeiting? I mean, if you say something dishonest or mislead for a purpose of gaining a financial benefit, it's absolutely unlawful. Why should it not be equally unlawful to create a fake of anybody unless it is done in a manner where it is perfectly obvious that it's satire, for example? Yeah, I think we may end up at that point. I think that's the... Mm. The the problem is the technology is being democratised. I come back to the point that ChatGPT is the fastest growing app ever. It's now in the hands of a billion people. Mm. Um, And we we could have made fakes in the past. I mean, with Photoshop, if you you had the expertise, you could do that. Mm. But now you just have to have the idea. You just have to say, I want a picture of the Pope in a white puffer jacket. Or I want a picture of candidate X punching somebody on a bus. Or Donald Trump being arrested by the NYPD. And, and someone did that. And someone did that. that. That is, you know, what happened on January 6th took not much more than that, really. Mm. Well, this, this has particular impact, you know, on, I mean, on social media, Twitter and Facebook, which are essentially public platforms. You know, bad news, fake news can be spread very quickly, but nonetheless, it can be observed. What is more disturbing is direct digital channels like WhatsApp, where someone could send thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of messages with an attachment of, you know, Donald Trump or somebody else being arrested. And as you said, with respect to the papal puffer jacket, it can't be unseen. 
Yes, and they can be personalized at scale. I mean, that's yeah. the other, other thing with these technologies. We can do things at scale and at cost that we previously couldn't do. And yes, we, we, we're we used to the idea that what we see, everyone else sees. We, we think that the internet we've got is the internet everyone else sees. We don't realize, actually, much of the internet we see is unique to us. Well, a particular TikTok, for example, yes. that, that is, that, that's one of the big distinguishing features of TikTok. Nobody knows what is actually on TikTok in total. It is effectively a direct digital channel into which you have very, which you, meaning society as a whole, you know, regulators, police, whatever, have very little insight. Yeah, I, I, I do wonder if we, this ability to personalise micro-target is also one of the dangers and whether we might actually have to, for example, I, I don't see why um, you should be able to target voters any more precisely than they live in my electorate, they're over the age of 18 and they can vote. Well, it's interesting you say that because that's been going on for years. Members of parliament long before electronic media have been writing letters to people over the age of 60 and writing something about, you know, pensions or whatever, you know. But, and and so the, there has always been micro-targeting or, or targeting, but the the point about the digital platforms, of course, is it enables you to really target people individually and send them the most individually curated message that's targeted to them. And it might be an untruth, and that untruth is not seen by anyone else. Correct. And that's that that's exactly the point. So the the more targeted the untruth, the less likely it is to be corrected. Because if you put a, a lie on the you know, front page of the Sydney Morning Herald. There might be some readers who believe it, but there'll be lots of people who say that's outrageous and, you know, write letters to the editor and put things on the Herald website and so forth. But if it's just directed to you, you're absolutely right. So where does AI go? How close are we, do you think, to having a computer program that enables you to actually impersonate a person to the point of, being utterly credible. Very soon, within the next decade. Yeah. And I, I say to people now, we're going to have to train ourselves that unless you actually were in the room with the person and saw them with your own eyes and heard them with your own ears, you have to entertain the and idea. And pinch them because you didn't want it to be a hologram. <laughs> but, um, so you need a hit, a palpable hit to quote that, you, know, yes. you literally smell them. Um, you have to entertain the idea that that is synthetic and there is no way to tell it apart from the real thing. Mm. And we're, we're not used to that. You don't seem to be melting down with anxiety, so that's encouraging. <laughs> well, I think there's an opportunity for old-fashioned media that we're going to have to say, we're going to say, well, social media right. is what where we're entertained and I treat everything I see on social media with a large pinch of salt. We are going to face some real challenges, aren't we, with fake images? Fake audio, fake video. Mm. And it undermines our faith in democracy. So yeah. we've already seen Donald Trump dismiss Im images and audio that we suspect are true. Yeah. Him saying disrespectful things about women. Say, oh, it's a deep fake. As far as we know, it's true. But perhaps many of his supporters believe it's a deep fake. And you only need one person to do a deep fake of Donald Trump saying disrespectful things about women. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. And that would enable him to 
then if he could establish that. Yes. And he might even be able to arrange for someone to do that. To then say every tape that relates to that is a fake. Yes. And so unless you could assemble all of the flesh and blood witnesses who said, yes, I was there, I heard it, people would be sceptical. Yeah. It, un- it undermines what is true. Undermines the credibility of everything that we see, even the true things. What is truth and even more sinisterly, it undermines the question of what is real. Yes. What actually happened. Well... So you've, you're going to sort all this out, Toby, <laughs> at the University of New South Wales. I mean, really, the University of New South Wales, not content with uh, inventing the uh, solar panel, and now we've got you there in the same campus saving us from AI. But what are your top three solutions to deal with this challenge, to defend our democracy against artificial intelligence? Three things. One is education. I think yeah. we have to, you know, it starts with civics, it, it starts with us being more sceptical consumers of this, of this yep. digital information. It continues with regulation. That we're going to have to decide that there are certain harms and we have to make it, you know, make the platforms responsible, more responsible than perhaps they have been. And then it ends with technology. There are things, you know, we touched on some of these ideas that we can use things like the blockchain to provide veracity. We can put digital watermarks in. Um, we can actually work out how to build the algorithms in ways that are less harmful. Mm, yes, I think well, all of those things count. But if, but the the sobering note, of course, is that you can't unsee the image. I mean, you can't. That, that that I think ultimately we have to we're going to have to train ourselves. It used to be, if we saw images, we we believed them, and now we have to realise it's so easy to generate those images, um, and not everything you see is true. Seeing is no longer believing. Toby, Palmer Lucky, when he was 90, I think, sold the virtual reality headset to Mark Zuckerberg for a lot of money. And now at 31 is running a company called Andrew, which is trying to bring all the techniques of innovation to military technologies. Uh, Palmer Lucky said um, to us the other day that he loves killer robots. <laughs> now, you don't love killer robots, I gather. How do we deal with that? I mean, are are we in a position where we're going to have like a sci-fi movie, you know, uh, these sentient computers stalking the world, zapping people left, right and centre? Well, I'm fearful that it will look like a bad science fiction movie. Um, And we don't have to go down that way. I mean, there are plentiful, you know, I'm I'm with Lucky, there are plentiful useful places that AI can be put to in in a military setting. I mean, as as an example, clearing a minefield, perfect job for a robot. If it Mm. goes wrong, robot gets blown up, go get another robot. No Mm. one should ever risk a life or limb ever again clearing a minefield, getting supplies into contested territory, fly them in and on someone of a drone. Um, No one needs to risk their life doing that. Um, So there there are plenty of ways that the military should be uh, embracing artificial intelligence as a technology to save lives and make warfare a less dangerous, more humane thing. But equally, handing that decision to machines as to who lives and who dies would take us to a very dark place. I think there are moral, legal, technical problems. Yeah, I, look, I, I, I'm sure there are. But let, let me just test this a little bit. Traditional mine is there just under the ground. Somebody steps on it, it blows up. It doesn't matter whether it's an enemy soldier 
one of your own soldiers or a civilian. It's it's indiscriminate. Uh, and that, of course, is one of the reasons why clearing mines has been such an enormous challenge many decades after the end of conflicts. If you have a mine, however, that is so-called smart mine and it is able, for example, to only detonate if it recognises the digital signature or the sonar signature of a particular type of enemy vehicle or um, vessel, is that a smart mine? Is that a killer robot or is is that actually an improvement? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it is a challenging question and it's not surprising, I think, that mines was one of the first military technologies that we did regulate and that we now do have quite sophisticated, quite, quite strict rules about how mines should be used and also about particular applications of mines. So anti-personal mines are, mm. are quite strongly regulated because we do find them somewhat barbaric and we find them much more barbaric than the mines that blow up military vehicles. Um, so, but we're talking about taking it to the next level. I mean, to take, take to, to, to robots that will have an ability to act over timescales of days or weeks mm. or months and over geographical scales that, are, that would be much larger than, you know, mines tend to be sitting in, 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 in the one place. And so that does take the problem to, to a, a different place. Right. Well, killer robots, you're against them. <laughs> well, I am. And I've now been banned from Russia uh, indefinitely as, uh, because of my opposition to, to, to killer robots. And I have had the privilege to speak half a dozen times at the United Nations about the risks, about, about the technical challenges about whether they're going to make mistakes, who will we hold accountable? We can't hold machines accountable. Um, and so whether they'd be compatible with international humanitarian law, many many scholars think that they would not be, and whether they also would be ultimately quite destabilising. We're seeing an arms race already happening in the Ukraine. We're seeing technologies that would be used not by just by people like ourselves who would use them in responsible ways, but they would be the perfect weapons for rogue states to commit harm. They'd be perfect weapons for terrorists. I mean, previously, if you wanted to do harm, you had to equip an army, you had to train them, you had to persuade them to do your evil. Now you wouldn't. You'd need one programmer and the machine would do whatever you told it, however vile that was. Kill all the women and children. It would go off and kill all the women and children. Mm. Well, you've got, I mean, the, the, the story, I think, of asymmetry in the military domain has been that because of technology, the impact of the individual actor on the battlefield with technology has become so enhanced. I mean, there was a time when the individual actor had a rifle. Well, then he got an RPG and could bring down an aeroplane or a tank. And now, you're absolutely right, if that individual actor is sitting in front of a computer screen controlling a robot, a drone or whatever, they can have enormous capabilities. Enormous capabilities and also enormous risks. Mm. I mean, we already know what happens when you put algorithms up against each other in a competitive, uncertain environment. You know it well, it's called the stock market. <laughs> and every now and again it goes wrong. And we don't know why it goes wrong. We just, we know it goes wrong. So we've put circuit breakers in place. We stop everything. We say, very sorry, none of that happened. Let's uh, give everyone all their money back. Let's wind it back to the beginning of the day and start again. Mm. Um, if we're on the DMZ between North Korea and South Korea, you've just started a war. Mm. You can't unkill the people you've killed. Well, that's true. And you also run the risk that you can create the panic. It gets back to the question of deep fakes. If you create the panic as 
NATO sort of innocently did with the famous Abel Archer exercise, which persuaded the Soviets that the West was about to launch a nuclear strike. Now, if they'd remained convinced of that, they could have easily launched a strike to preempt it. They could, and unfortunately, technologies like this will change the, the speed of response. They'll reduce the decision cycles mm. down from hours and minutes to seconds and milliseconds. Um, and maybe there are no humans who can respond quickly enough before we have actually launched a response. Mm. Mm. Well, having just got back from four days in Taiwan, all of these issues are very, very much in the forefront of my mind, that very thin edge between an unsteady peace and uh, catastrophe and war. Yeah, and it's going to be much harder to know who's attacking you. There's already been a drone attack on a Russian base in Syria mm. where we're not exactly sure who was behind it. Dro drones were brought down, you open them inside and they've got Intel chips. That doesn't tell you anything. Yeah, well, that's but that, that that's that's always been the case with cyber. I mean, this yes. is one of the biggest problems with cyber security is, the, is attribution because and even in, in, in circumstances where your signals intelligence agency says... Yes, it was from, this was from country X. It's really, you know, 100% yeah. certain. And there is always uh, a degree of plausible deniability. Unfortunately, that uncertainty won't be turning up in the real world, in yeah. the kinetic, physical yeah, world. exactly. With warfare that's waged by autonomous machines. Good. Bad. Well, that's not good at all. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> it's extremely bad. Well, Toby, thank you very much. I'm glad you stand between us and chaos and disaster. So keep keep at it. Keep standing there at the gates to defend us. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Malcolm. Thank you, Toby. The podcast was written and produced by myself and Lisa Main. Music was composed by Helena Chiker.